Welcome to Becoming Church, the podcast where we discuss how the message and movement of Jesus is not just about becoming Christians, but about becoming the church. I'm your host, Kristen Mockler-Young, and I'm so glad you are joining the conversation. Kristen here. I'm sneaking in to make sure you know that this is the second part of a conversation with Russell Berry that was so robust and beautiful. We had to split it into two episodes so our brains didn't explode trying to take it all in at once. If you missed the first part, you can pause this and go back to listen to that first, or you can just stay here because maybe somebody sent you this episode and these are the words that you need to hear. It's an abrupt start, but I think you'll get past it because we get right into the heart of the conversation. Here's the rest of my interview with Russell Berry. You and Lecrae sit down over yeah. breakfast or lunch or something. I don't know. All that looked good, what y'all were eating in that documentary. But you had a conversation, a very real and honest conversation about social justice and about how Americans or maybe specifically even white evangelicals in America seem to define exactly who Jesus meant by love your neighbor. And Lecrae even makes the point to say, you know, people are all for like caring for the poor and the marginalized. But then when it comes to injustice for black people, everybody's like, whoa, 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 this is a different issue. Mm. Why? Why do you think that is? Oof. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's just, you know, end on an easy light note. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question and it's an important one. And I think it goes back to, um, I think there's a couple ways to to uh, answer it i think one um we talked earlier in the beginning about a dominant culture or being part which is different than not just majority culture but it's also a dom and i'll use this as an example i went to singapore um actually to do another documentary series called in pursuit of jesus uh with our daily bread ministries and while i was there I learned that there were two major ethnic groups in Singapore. There's the majority group, which is the um, uh, basically descendants of Chinese people, um, Han Chinese. And then there's the minority group, uh, which are the Malay people, which are ultimately descendants uh, from Malaysia. And the numbers are about the same as America. It's about 75% um, uh, Chinese, uh, 13, 14% uh, Malay. And most of the Malay are Muslim, most of the, the Chinese are Christians. Okay. Um, and uh, so when I was talking, I was talking to mostly Christians on, for the documentary. So I was talking to mostly Chinese Singaporeans, right? So they are from Singapore, but they're Chinese ancestry. And I asked them about um, what's the dynamic like? I noticed, I'm like, hey, you guys have a pretty significant Malay population here very culturally different. What's the dynamic like? They were like, well, we are very proud of the fact that we don't have issues of ethnic tension here. Everybody's treated the same way. You know, that's something that was settled in our constitution when we first got established as a country. And so we're great, right? I'm like, great. And then to a person, every person I was asking answered that same thing. Okay. But because I'm Black in America and I'm like, wait a minute, I, I, I got to talk to a Malay person to see if uh-huh. this is really, Sounds like, sus. Let's go. <laughs> you know I mean? 
if this is really what the deal is. But I, the, but because you know I didn't know anybody, so I literally was walking on the street and just listen and just ask somebody, "Hey, are you Malay?" <laughs> and and uh, I was like, "Can I talk to you?" And he was like, "Sure." And one of the things that was so great was that their culture was so inviting. He just literally, I just met the man. Name was Hardy off the street. He invited me to go eat with him and his Indian friend. And so I I sit down with them. I'm like, so tell me, was this like being a Malay in Singapore? And he began to just talk about the discrimination, the the ways in which, you know, they there are all these stereotypes. And he actually said, and people think because we had a Malay president that that makes everything okay, but there's still issues that we suffer through and that didn't change anything. And I was like, this is sounding very similar. So the reason why I bring up that is because I don't think that my the people that I talked to, the Chinese Christians that I had talked to, were being deliberately um, like uh, in denial about um, the plight of the Malay people there. I think that they were unaware. I think that because they were in their own space in the yeah. system and the culture worked for them, I think that there were some blind spots. And um, well, and there's a privilege in having a block. You don't have to see it. Right, right. So, yeah. so I think, um, so I think one, you have that layer, which I think exists in America too, where sure. it's just not there. But then when you add to it, and this is one of the sticky points, and there's a book called A Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark Knoll, where he expand, he, he looks into the, the basic theological debate that was happening uh, in the church around the issue of slavery in the 1800s. And one of the things that ends up being a thread, I would say, is a um, poisonous um, pill that gets baked into the uh, the cake of how a lot of people think of themselves as Christianity as, as Christians was nationalism. So yeah. earlier in, in the very early beginnings of the country, you have this idea that fused their ethnic identity with the state of the country, right? So America is a city on a hill. There's this idea of manifest destiny that God is calling us to take this land and for our country and to make it more like us as a really as a twisted version of the Great Commission of like what it means to go to all nations. They thought that means to go to the natives and to make them white and to make them Eurocentric to, to, you know, and and so there's a a insidious way in which oftentimes the 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 story and the identity of national pride is intertwined with this idea of the christian you know faith and that has to be disentangled in order for us to have a real sense of understanding that um that i can rightfully hold America up to the standard of scripture and say, this is where our history falls short without um, compromising my ability to say, and I'm proud to be an American, right? Like I'm, I'm proud to be an American, but I'm not proud of this history. I'm not proud of this part of the story. And my faith tell, calls me and challenges me to correct that which needs to be corrected, just like the prophets in the Old Testament didn't just say, I'm, I'm, an Israeli, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Hebrew, so that means everything that my people do, I have to defend. They actually said, no, because I love the, you yes, know, yes. Uh, my country, I have to tell it the truth. And part of that truth is to say, this is where things have fallen short. But there, that's hard, and especially it's hard when there's a certain version and vision of 
who you, how you see yourself or how you see the history that basically skips over from God choosing Israel to God choosing the United States and then making that be part of you know, together. So then you have to defend everything because we have to be the best. We have to be the best country in the world. And we have to, you know, have, you know, be better than everybody else, as opposed to saying like, well, actually, there's some really dark ass chapters of our history um, that we can also simultaneously say part of the reason why God got us out of it and got us through was because of the voices of those who were formerly enslaved. And now they experience freedom. And now we're in a place where um, they trusted God and they didn't therefore decide let's just violently try to kill everybody who enslaved us before but instead let's forgive them let's move forward let's you know let's trust god for bigger and better things and so that story invites us to hear other people's stories that also are american that also are make up the fabric of our country and that points us to a truth that is actually the the kingdom of god is what actually evaluates my national and ethnic identity not the other way around. Yeah. So you you mentioned like the voices, right? That there were people. So for those of us right now, I, I know there are people listening that are like, yes, and how? Like, what do we do, <laughs> right? So it's very easy to go, well, I'm not in government and I don't have any power and I can't do anything to make change. But I also believe that there are a lot of us who have had our eyes open to either learning things differently or realizing that there were so many things that we didn't know that we're trying to know now, what can people do? What can people do? Yeah, I would say definitely continue where the first aspect is, is learning. I think part of that is listening to a variety of voices and perspectives. You know, like when I, just to go back to the language example, um, I was, when I went to Cameroon, proficient, I'm using air quotes, Yes. Um, in French by my university standards, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had taken the classes. I had gotten good grades in the classes. I had taken the test. When I got to Cameroon, I was like a fish out of water. I could barely understand anything. <laughs> yeah. And it was because I had to be immersed in the in, in where people spoke the language and I heard it every day. And it was only by hearing it that I was able, it was like a radio tuner to the frequency, the old school when you're in the radio in a car and you're like, wait, I got a song, but I can only kind of hear it. And you find that right frequency. And then that frequency helps you to understand a whole lot that was misunderstood yeah. to you before. In the same way that immersing ourselves in the voices and the stories in the context of those who are different than us helps us to tune into the right frequency. So we're able to hear a different part of the story. We're able to hear different voices. So I would say that's not just reading a book as important as that is and good as that is, but also going to where people are talking about the book yeah. and, 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 and intentionally putting yourselves in situations where I'm sitting under the teaching um, of those who look different and who have a different story to tell. I think that's a part of it. I think um, beyond that, you know, learning what they prioritize as the next important steps, right? And instead of coming up with it yourself, say, okay, how can I help support the work that is happening on this local level and be a part? So for instance, um, you know, with the film and, and and the devotionals and all the things that we've created, like we've done this to be a resource to the entire body of Christ, white, black, Asian, Latino, native, everyone, um, and say, 
hey, you what you can do is so take these voices that are not yours and amplify them. You know what I mean? Through your network, through your platform, say, hey, somebody listen to this podcast. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. And check out this story or or do more. And then and then that will help you to understand because that conversation with Lecrae was really insightful because one, I asked him, you know, what are you doing like to live out this Juneteenth vision? Yeah. And he talked about the work he's doing in prisons, the work he's doing in um, impoverished neighborhoods in Atlanta, the work that he's doing, you know, with housing development and all of those things in his mind were expressions of that same work of helping proclaim freedom uh, to all. And I think that that's the gospel that we preach, uh, a one that's holistic and that speaks to mind, body, and soul. And because that's what Jesus did, right? He didn't just say, come follow me. He also said, take up your mat and walk. He also yeah. said, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You know, do justice to those around you. And so I think all of those things are important aspects, but the specifics of how those things are things we need to work out in our individual context. And that starts with listening, with learning, and then living it out. That's awesome. So many good practical things, Russell. Thank you so much. I think too, just like you gave grace to our listeners earlier, I'm going to give it to them one more time, especially to our white evangelical listeners who are trying, right? Mm. There is, it's a process. It mm. is a process. I think for some people picking up a book about Juneteenth, picking up a book by a black author is the first step. Mm. And that is a good first step. Now, keep going after that, right? Like take a second and a third step. That's a good first step. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, well, a few years ago, I guess, but realizing and having this conversation with my husband when our girls were very, very little and realizing even though we went to a diverse church, it's not something we were living out in our lives. And we had to go, all right, if this is more than just something we believe in, this is something that actually matters to us, then we need to be really intentional. And I just remember having this conversation with God about like, how do I live like Jesus and love like Jesus better? And coming away with the thought of, do I have a black friend or do I just know a black person? Mm. And to me, that was such a big difference between, am I listening? Am I doing life with people? Or am I just going again, maybe in a performative stance of like, well, I know black people, right? As if like, that's all it takes. Right. Yeah. You know, let me, let me co-sign on it. Cause this is another real practical nugget that I, I found. So this is how you know that you just have an acquaintance versus like if you've gotten to the level of connecting with people on a deeper uh, friendship yeah. level. A, are they comfortable or willing to talk about their experiences with racism with you? Yeah. B, when they do that, are you comfortable enough with yourself to not take it personal or not feel like it's an attack or not, but to actually recognize it for the gift that it is, yeah. which is someone in, inviting you into their experience. Yeah. You, I saw you nodding. So like, tell me about you, that, that resonates with you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember, um, gosh, when was it? Maybe it was after the murder of George Floyd. I don't remember, but I was doing, cause I think it was during COVID. Everybody was, everything was zoom, right? Everything right. was online. So doing all these Instagram lives. And I remember having a friend of mine on, and we were just talking about like, I mean, just everything right? Like racial injustice and all the things. And I must've said something about on Instagram live, mind you, I said something to the effect of, oh, well, I'm not going to tell my girls about this yet because they're too young. And I want to like protect them about, I, I think it was George Floyd's murder. And she stopped me and she was like, I hear you, but I don't actually, as a black mom, like 
with two black sons, I don't actually have that privilege mm. of not being able to tell my six-year-old mm. what's happening. I mean, I have goosebumps right now. Like I will never forget that moment because that to me was going, okay, she just in the most loving way, again, friend of mine, we have a relationship, right? Like she can speak into my life and she knew she could not only speak into what I was saying incorrectly, but she could do it on an Instagram live (laughs) (laughs) in front of whoever else was watching or would watch it later. And in the moment I I felt shame. Mm. I felt guilt. I felt um, like I had been called out. I felt really dumb, but I, I had to shake it off and go, all right, Shamira is trying to help me. She's trying to teach me. She loves me enough. And she knows that I love her enough that we can have these conversations. Um, And it really just was one of those turning points to me where I was like, oh, I'm doing the good work of, you know, understanding. And I was, but again, it's a, it's a process, right? Let me ask you, because I, you know, that thanks, thanks for sharing that. But like, do you think was her point to say, so therefore you should talk to your six-year-old about this? Or was her point more of just like drawing out a, a just a natural difference in her experience and yours? I think it was both. I uh, think she wanted me to understand as a white woman, like, hey, not everybody has, right. as much as we love our kids the same, right? Not everybody right. has the privilege of not doing it. But I also think she was challenging me mm. to like, no, your kids can handle it. Like if my kids right. can handle it, right? because they have to. Yeah. Why would you wait and not mm. teach them what's happening so that they can at their level, you know, show up for their friends and show up in their classroom and show up for their brothers and sisters yeah. at, no. at age six? Mm. Let me, I feel the need to pastor right now for the listener that might be thinking, wait a minute, that seems like that's too intense. The, right, come on. Talk about what might be. So I think one of the things that that feedback um gave an opportunity for us to do is to realize that oftentimes in Christian spaces, one of the misnomers that we can also oftentimes embrace is a is is that we're supposed to present a sanitized, safe world, especially for our kids. Yeah. And only later when they are more mature to handle the reality of brokenness should we introduce it. When in actuality the opposite is true. Obviously, within the context of appropriate language, I'm, we're not saying, you know, hey, six-year-old, come watch this, you know, m- murder happen. Right. But what we are saying is that inviting and really discipling our kids into the fact that this world is broken. There are ways in which people experience reality and that truth that are different than what we might, you know, at home. And that that's part of the reason why we look for heaven and we look forward to Jesus and we ask him to heal the broken places, that doing that early on is something that helps cultivate two things. One, an accurate picture of the reality that I might have and the distance that might be there between my experience in the suburbs. And, you know, I'm not hating on that. I lived in the suburbs before. I live in New York City now. Two different things. But but my experience is not everybody's experience. That's one thing it gives you. And the other gift that it gives you is, and Jesus's experience of the kingdom is so much better than this world. And let's long for that. Let's teach hunger for that. And there's a way you can do that without totally demolishing a sense of imagination or, you know, a sense of, you know, um, and, and a, a youthful enthusiasm about life in the world. Yeah. And you can hold those things together when you do it wisely. And that is something that is, like you said, as a Black parent, I've kind of had to because 
it was like not optional to talk about these things or, you know, um, in our context when they were, you know, throughout our lives, because it was just life. And right. so part of the gift of be using your influence with others is to take the things that don't have to be a part of your life, but to make them a part of your, your life so that your kids, your, your friends, your, your network of influence builds out a sense of empathy and compassion for those whose regular everyday struggle is not something that you actually have to do. One, uh, when we were living in Indiana, in the suburbs once, um, there was a, uh, a gentleman um, who chose, he was an, a homeless advocate. And um, he came to our church and he invited us to go on this being homeless for a weekend experience. Oh, and uh, my daughter at the time was in high school. Um, I think she was a junior and she, she wanted to come with me. And so we went on this experience, parked the car in downtown Indy, walked about four, five blocks and slept that night in an alley with homeless people. And then got up the next day and went with wherever they went. And they, we, there was no difference. In, and it taught us something that we could never otherwise learn. And I remember, and that, and that lesson stayed with her. And so that's something that I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to participate in, but I also... And I was a little scared at the time, like, what am I doing? I'm literally taking my daughter and sleeping outside on the street. And I wouldn't do that in New York, but um, <laughs> to be clear. But, Indiana um, was a little different. <laughs> Indiana was a little different, a lot different. But um, but having said that, that is that is a gift to give to people to to build their out out their sense of vision for how do I mm, that's the gospel, Krista? Mm-hmm. Like he who was rich became poor so yes. that we who were poor could become rich. Isn't that the gospel? That yes. Jesus came and made himself homeless? Didn't he say the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, even though he was in heaven? And didn't he do that so that we could now be heirs to the throne and now have a place that he's built up for us? You know, if it, my, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it wasn't so, I would have told you, come on. I, that's the gospel. And that's what we get the opportunity to invite people into because he took the risk and because he put himself in that way. And that's, what we get to do in our lives. That's what I think learning and engaging and participating in the history and the story of struggle and other people like in Juneteenth gives us the opportunity to do. Well, again, and it's not just of checking off of a, a to-do list, a bucket list of like, okay, I've experienced this now, but the whole point, especially for your daughter, I just think of your daughter and all of the things that she took away with this of the understanding of someone else's perspective, the compassion that she can have now, the next time she walks down the street and sees people, it's no longer a, I can't relate to you. I mean, it was 24 hours. I'm not saying it was exactly the same. It was two days actually, but still it's not the okay, same. Listen, okay, listen, <laughs> okay. But there's that sense of putting, removing ourselves, right, from our little bubble and putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, better understanding their perspective and where they're coming from. I have been, Russell, I have been thinking so much lately about fear and how actually it's fear that has driven a lot of the choices that I think white evangelicals especially have made. Um, I mean, even talking about our kids, right? We want to put them in this protective bubble to protect their innocence. We want them to only know that God is good and that Jesus loves them and all of the things. But now sitting here as a grand millennial, (laughs) I am like, I wonder if that protective bubble wouldn't have served me better if it had been popped sooner Mm. than it did in my like mid thirties, because 
Now I can look back and realize that, yes, I think there were good hearts and good intentions, right? With all of our Sunday school teachers and the lessons and the things that were given to us in the way that we were raised by being protected from other experiences. But I also think it was a lot of fear of control of like, we can control things and we can control their behavior if we keep them away from what's bad. And that's just not the real world. And I think that's why so many people right now are deconstructing or whatever you want to yeah. call it, because they're like, well, I was told that if I loved God, then everything would be great and easy. And so now what? Uh Absolutely. Um, I think that I have reflected often on the toxicity of a fear motivation. And the interesting thing is I've, I've heard this said oftentimes, and I, I believe it to be true just from my own reading of scripture, also, that the most repeated commandment in the Bible is do not be afraid. Is it? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? The most. I would have thought it would be to love people. Yeah, I think do not be afraid. And um, that's what he, God tells his people um, the most. And I think it's because um, it is so often what motivates us and in, in, in to not trust God. The, and, and it causes us to sin because we then take things in our own hands. And so I think that perfect love, to your point about love, cast out fear, yeah. right? And because with fear, there's there's a sense of punishment and, and does God have my best interest at heart? And so um, there is a relationship between fear and love for sure. But I, I think that that word, um, and, and I, I'll just call out the things that people are afraid of. And again, it goes back to, this is why I had to start the conversation looking at the very origins and talking about things like manifest destiny and the city on a hill and some of the myth of, of nationalism is because when the framework that has been passed down of about what does it mean to be in this country and society and live out my faith and my life is the assumption of American dominance of American exceptionalism is actually a phrase that you know oftentimes you know politicians use unabashedly. Yeah. We are more special than the rest of the world, yes. and that's why, and and we got to keep it that way. Like. That those when those things are part of the things that have formed my identity, then it also permeates into how I think about my faith choices or where how I should be challenged and stretched. And so then when those things start to change, and, and again, I'm you know, society is changing some ways for good, some ways for bad, but those those sense of discomfort causes me to fight against it and use the the anything I have in my control. Cause when I'm afraid, I will use anything in my power. To, to, to prevent the fear from becoming reality. And the thing about trusting God is that God doesn't call us to use the levers of our power to hold together what we think it, it should look like, um, you know, to, uh, to be protected. But what he does say is that we should use our influence and power to serve the lost, the least, you know what I mean? And those who yeah. are left out. And that is a very different impulse. I can only do that well when I have a love for God and a reverent fear of him and not fear for like my status and my, my stature in the society and seeing that slip away, seeing the, the things that, and again, there's a grief in that. I'm not going to front, like, you know, I don't grieve the fact that the things that used to be assumed as part of a Christian 
you know, uh, Christianized space is no longer that. There, there's something to yeah. be lost, but I don't have to feel like the best solution for that is for me to fight and, and to see other people as my enemy. Instead, I think about how do I prayerfully enter in that space and love others and, and because that because of the love that I know God has me in and that there's some benefits to this because for ever, other people, and this was something that Carl Ellis, uh, he's a professor, uh, taught me that in white evangelical kind of understanding of history, the world, the, the, the America started as a very Christian country and then has gone down over the last 250 years. And then he made the case, he looked at it from a black context. America started as a very unchristian country oh, wow. from a sense of justice and has gone become more and more just over time. And so even that whole aspect of the, the imagination or the way that I look at things, and of course, there's there's tr complexity to either of those. None of those are completely right. But it is to say, even within some of the things that are challenging, right, there's still aspects in which God is doing his thing in the midst. And so I don't have to be um, this aspect of like desperate and in despair because despair and fear produce desperate, like produces like a sense of like, I have to like fight or flight. And I, and yeah. I, and now yes. you're no longer operating in, in faith that causes you to think soberly and think, okay, what do I need to do? And I have wisdom. Now I'm just like emotionally reacting. And when I get away from that, and I can realize, you know what, God got us and he's doing some great things in the world. And there's some things that are hard in the world. How do I, you, how do you want me to enter in and show up when I can enter in like that? Then I'm no longer controlled by fear, which is from the enemy. And now I am empowered by the spirit, which is from the Lord. Well, and it, it even has to start with our own, like even talking about I can just imagine the the some people listening that are like, well, I can't enter in and whatever, because I do think they're probably still caught in that safety bubble. And I think the question there first is, right, like before we can be Jesus, before we can become the church, before we can go out into the community and love others and fight for change, we have to look at our own relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And if we are clinging to safety, if yeah. we are if we see Christianity as a self-centric thing, Jesus came and died for me, which yes, he did, but also everyone else too, right? If we're only clinging to this, then there will be no pruning. There will be no exhortation in our lives. There will be no, even back to the conversation that I said with Shemira, like if people can't come to us, if God can't come to us and go, hey, here's maybe where you're missing it. Like that has to be where it begins before we can even think about how we can go out into the world and try to make things better for others. Amen. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great word. Um, definitely. There's a, a, a worship group, uh, common hymnal. Yes. Um, love them. And they have a song, not just for me, you know, yeah. and, and I, and I, and that's a, and that's a great, and that, and that, that whole project reminded me of even the importance of what we worship to and how, um, if I'm only in listening to individualistic, you know, pietistic or like just things about escapism, getting me away from the world, then that actually forms me spiritually. And sure. I love the way that there were, they, like they had a, they, the, the album starts with um, a, a song that's basically like um, this, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you know, mm -hmm. and the blood, you know, and the kingdom is yours. We don't have enough kingdom songs that talk about a yearning for the kingdom. And when I look at Psalms, Proverbs, I was just in the, uh, Isaiah this morning, 
um, because I'm preaching on Isaiah 40, 31, and you look at that, and it's just bursting with eschatological hope of justice reigning into the world and promise. And that was the things that they hoped for. Like, and I'm like, we've missed some of that kind of hopefulness in a certain eschatological view that is escapist in its origin. It's just all about Lord, just come bring me to like, get me out of here. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and there's an aspect where there's moments where I feel like, get me out of here. I'm not going front, but, but I went, but, Beyond those moments, there's the mandate, the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with goodness, with good culture. I remember Andy Crouch in in his book, Culture Making, it really was transformational for me because he said the only antidote for, I'll just use the phrase, bad culture or culture that is going off the rails is creating good culture. Mm. And what Christians have typically done is just thought to just criticize the bad, the cultural products that don't reflect God and think that that is enough, but it's not enough. You got to create something else, you know, so that people can see the goodness of God. And that's what a vision for what does he have me here to do gives while, right? Like that's what Paul says. It is more beneficial for you that I still remain in the body, even though I'd rather be with the Lord. And so there is a benefit that we can have for others when we build culture, build conversations, build relationships that point people to Jesus. And that can be a salve to a a hurting world. Yeah. I mean, it's that old quote, right? Like, you know, you've created God in your image when he hates all the same people you do. (laughs) Have you heard that? I forget forget who said that, but it is, it's that idea of like, are we building up a Christian culture, a church culture, a God culture? That's like, yes, yes. For, for these people who look like me, believe like me, Mm -hmm. all of these have this shared experience. Listen, friend, I could sit here and talk to you all day, all day, all day. I will let you go. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about anything? Yeah, I would just say thank you for having me on again. And I just want to encourage everyone um, that it's okay to not know. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes saying the wrong thing is the biggest fear in some people's mind about being able to enter into these conversations and spaces. And I would say saying nothing is actually worse um, (laughs) because it it doesn't allow for the opportunity to learn and grow and to advocate for a different story and a better story that God is telling. And so um, be willing to put yourself out there. And, and we hope that this uh, these resources that our daily bread is put together, um, you know, by the Voices Collection, which is a specific um, emphasis on uh, within our daily bread to amplify the voices of Black Christian content creators. Um, we hope that this resource with Juneteenth would be uh, a gift to the body that can help with these conversations and help with these journeys. And so thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell folks about it. You can go to experiencevoices.org um, to, to, to get more information, to sign up, to do a screening. Um, and then when I say sign up to do a screening, what I mean is you fill out the form, we give you a licensing form. You can actually get the, not just the YouTube version, but the actual, we'll send you a digital version of the film with a marketing material so that you can have uh, a a screening on your own, you know, church community that can bless a lot of people. And so we invite you to do that. And uh, folks are doing that all over the country. And you can also check me out on the socials, uh, Russell B on IG. 
uh, Russell at Russell Berry on Twitter, uh, Russell Berry on Facebook. So love to keep the convo going. Awesome. Yes, I've been taking fervent notes. So just scroll down, friends. I'm going to link everything up in there. Any Bible verse, book, song, everything that you reference, Russell, I will put in there. And yeah, I just to reiterate, just to wrap in humility, friends, just try, right? Mm -hmm. In humility, don't worry about what you look like. If you say it wrong, the Holy Spirit's going to be with you. And yeah, Russell, thank you so much um, for your time. It's been really, really great having you. It's great being with you. Wow, Russell left us with some honest questions to ask ourselves, but I hope you heard the heart of this conversation, which is to gently encourage, inspire, and lead you on in your pursuit of living a life more like Jesus. If you want more resources, whether it's book recommendations, other podcasts, or voices that we trust for your own continued process of humble learning, check out the resources tab at mosaicchurch.tv. You can also send me a message at any time or leave comments on our social media posts. Your questions, beliefs you're wrestling through, and feedback on episodes are always welcome there. Until next time, we're with you in Becoming Church.